Hello, and welcome to Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America. This fall, we released a digital magazine about the topic of resilience. In it, we feature the wisdom and unique perspectives of change makers, thought leaders, and creatives on how we, as a nation, can bolster the resilience of our society. Please visit the magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to learn more. The story of Darren Walker's life is the kind of American story we love to tell and wish that there were many more of. He was born to a single mother in a charity hospital, lived in a shotgun shack in a small rural community in East Texas, and attended public schools and colleges. Darren was in the first class of Head Start in 1965 and received Pell Grants and private scholarships to further his education. Today, as he put it himself recently in a commencement address at the University of Vermont, I am black, I am gay, I live in Manhattan, that tiny island moored off the coast and a little unmoored from reality. And I spend much of my time traveling across the country and around the world, meeting visionary, courageous, resilient people, fighting poverty, inequality, and injustice. Darren is the type of person who can put you at ease and spot your hidden talents. He's down to earth and hugely relatable. Darren is also brilliant and is helping to change the world of philanthropy and as a result, making America a better place. Let's get to my conversation with Darren Walker. Darren Walker, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's great to be with you, Anne-Marie. So we're talking about resilience and your life and your experience, I think, illustrates different kinds of resilience. And I wanted to start with a quote about you uh, from The New Yorker, where it says, you've always moved in many different circles. You've moved in gay circles, transplanted Southern circles, banking circles, African-American circles. So I wanna start with the idea that resilience is about being a we rather than being more than an I. I mean, often we think about resilience like hunker down like a rock and just, endure. But as we've thought about resilience and as I think about resilience, I think of it more about having communities, having foundations. So I wondered if you would talk a little bit about all the different circles you are part of and how that makes you a more resilient person or how that influences your thinking about resilient communities. Well, I agree with you that a person is stronger by having a sense of we and a commitment to understanding why we, as opposed to I, will make I stronger. Yes. And I am strengthened by my engagement in the broad world. I actually think that one of the reasons I have been relatively successful is because I have drawn on the broad experiences of people whose lives have touched me and whose lives I've touched. I have become stronger, more knowledgeable about the world. I have witnessed 
the, the kinds of challenges in different contexts and how to respond to them. And I just think if I were to look comprehensively, I'm a stronger person because I am in so many of these different communities and because I do have so many spheres uh, to draw from as I think about my own resilience. That's, that's a wonderful advertisement for openness and resilience, right? Thinking about the more open you are to different communities, to different experiences, that broadens you and strengthens you. I, I hadn't ever thought about it that way. Um, so I, and I, again, I think it's, it's a very, it's a much broader notion of resilience than, than of endurance. Let's shift to talking about um, also resilience and risk, because in the one, on the one hand, if you're going to take risks, you need resilience. Uh, but resilient, I think, uh, being knowing that you're resilient can also make you more willing to take risks. But I have to note, as I looked at your career, and and you and I have had similar careers in a lot of ways, Indeed. but you you've taken some big risks. So I mean, you even we're going to come back to your childhood, but you know, you were. You went into law. You practiced international law. You went from law to investment banking. Okay, you know, that's all, that's a sort of path. And then, you know, you actually left UBS to work for as a full-time volunteer for a year in the children's storefront, which is in, in Harlem. I'm just imagining your mother's face when you told her you were going to do that. I mean, that's the kind of, like, get off the track, do something really different. And then you move from there uh, gradually into foundation work and, of course, then then uh, have risen to, to where you are now. But talk about sort of that sense of plunging in and doing something completely different. Well, there was no doubt that it was uh, a risk to leave Wall Street and to go into the nonprofit sector. You are right. Uh, it was my grandmother <laughs> <Okay>. who... <laughs> called me to say, is what your mama told me right? That <laughs> right. you are going to work up in Harlem? Then boy, why'd you get all that education? Exactly. You didn't need all that education to go to do that work. Right. And uh, I explained to her that actually the education that I'd received was going to be really valuable to me and that I would be able to contribute to the community that I was moving to, because by then I'd moved to right. Harlem in some, I thought, some really um, significant ways because of that education and training. And I think I was right in that regard. But the risk was not as significant as one might think, because I had resolved that staying on Wall Street was not going to be a long-term right. objective for me. Um, and so I think the, the risk was was making sure I chose to do the right thing, uh -huh. that I would do the thing that was ultimately going to be the highest value opportunity for me as I thought about how to make a contribution. Right. So um, if you're going to do this, make sure you're working for an NGO, a civil society organization where you, where you are gonna have an impact. But were you afraid that you were sort of just stepping off the track that you were? I mean, first of all, it was a completely different kind of work. And when we take risks, you know, we're always worried we're going to fail in some level, but also that you were just, you know, you've been driving down this very well-established track and you suddenly yeah. took a right turn or a left turn, yeah. depending. Did, did you, did that worry you? 
There were days that I worried about it, uh, certainly financially. Right. Yes. Uh, there were days day. when I worried about, you know, I was living downtown in a pretty comfortable neighborhood and yep. a very nice apartment. I mean, Harlem in the early 90s was a very different place than it is today. Uh, there was there weren't a lot of nice apartments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of burned out housing and uh, a lot of disinvestment that was just about everywhere you look. So there were absolutely days when I questioned whether I'd made the right decision. But I knew that my fate and my future lied in doing something that was more meaningful mm -hmm. than selling mortgage backed securities. Right. Right. Uh, that I had to use that skill that I honed on Wall Street, but put it to a better use. Right, right. Um, well, and I do think, again, that sense of meaning and purpose we know gives us a way forward, actually, uh, even in the, the toughest times. Absolutely. So that, that I do, under, uh, do understand. You know, you talked about your grandmother and your mother, and you have described often, you know, gr growing up poor and in the South and African-American. Those, those three things are each tough and altogether uh, very tough. Talk about the resilience of, of your home communities and, and how, you know, without the assets we have. I mean, you're right to say that when you're highly educated as you were and you already, you know you can earn an income, how far you're gonna fall. But in you grew up in communities where, you know, losing an income or, you know, an accident or whatever could make the difference between, you know, really existential differences. So talk to me about how, how the resilience of those communities and what, what allows them to endure and how you uh, think about that sort of as part of your life journey. Well, I think there was a lot of social capital. Uh -huh. There wasn't a lot of financial capital. <laughs> but within my community, there were people who really were cheering me on. I have always felt that my country cheered me on in my community, in spite of the barriers, even the barriers that I saw in my own community, um, the barriers around race, for example, even the barriers around class. And of course, being uh, a young gay boy in a Southern town um, isn't an optimal scenario for any kid. But on the other hand, I was pretty resilient. Some of that I think was just my, my own inner core right. and my, my ambition. Right. I think I've always had a sense of ambition and I, at a young age, became comfortable with that ambition, owning which that. I think yeah. sometimes owning our ambition is something that people of color, women, Absolutely. often struggle with. Yes, because we get lots of, lots of signals that it's not really okay. <laughs> we get lots of signals that it's not okay, that it's not culturally normative exactly. to be ambitious exactly. in the way in which exactly. white men would right. be ambitious. Right. Who would be expected Who to be, be, right? It's a problem if they're not. Yeah. It would be normative if they're not. That's right. And so I always knew I wanted to be successful, that I did not see my life in a small town in Texas, <laughs> and that I wanted to build my own capability, right. if you will. And so that really meant education for me. 
And in those towns where you know I lived, where I、uh, you know was not unusual to hear the N word, where you were often seen as invisible,、um, I endured a lot of that. But I also endured tremendous generosity from people, from white people. Yeah. Yeah. People who were committed to my success, who encouraged me, who acknowledged my success and my own progress. So I think I was very lucky because while there were barriers, there were also、uh, people supporting me. So while there were tailwinds,、uh, <laughs> there were headwinds, and so both of those together was my experience. And you, you've actually broadened that out to say that you had a country that cared about me and believed in my dreams, which is to me the very best of what America can be.、Uh, that that somebody f- coming from where you came from, ambitious, wanting to make it—that's that's the American dream. Talk a little bit about that sense that not just people in your life are cheering for you, but that your country is cheering for you, and the support that gives you, and and then maybe we can unpack the extent, the ways in which that's changed, or the way that in which that needs to change. Well, I certainly think, as I recall my boyhood and sitting on the front porch of a little shotgun house on a dirt road in rural East Liberty County, Texas, and the woman approached our.、Uh, Little house and told my mother that she wanted to enroll me in、um, a new government program called Head Start that would、government、be starting、yeah. um, in 1965. And so, being in the first class that summer was my introduction to the idea that the、uh, United States government was making a commitment to support、mm-hmm. little boys and girls <laughs> like me. And I think. I have had a trajectory of support from the United States government, whether it was strong public schools, which, while supported locally, also had federal imperatives.、Right. At the same time, when I came,、uh, when I went into college, and the Pell Grant made it possible for me,、yeah. um, a strong state land grant. University that was、uh, basically underwritten by the state of Texas yep. taxpayers. Yep. And as I think about those years, there were clearly、uh, decisions, policy decisions that were made that said the people of the United States, through our government, are validating the worth. And the aspiration of little poor boys and girls like Darren Walker, who have dreams, and the government, whether that's federal or state or local, through the citizens, are manifesting their belief in your potential, and and so the cheering me on metaphor was in part that. It was also private philanthropy because I was lucky enough to win scholarships、right. um, that came from private philanthropy, right, right. and so that was an essential part of the cheering me on to have, you know,、uh, Texas oil man establishing an important endowment that allowed me、uh, to have a scholarship or in law school a 
a prominent Texas lawyer mm. establishing a scholarship right. um, that provided financial support for me. All of that was uh, in the aggregate, a huge cheering section um, that I think in some ways ensured that my dreams would, would be realized. I love that because it, it's a vision of government support as a foundation as a foundation to stand on rather than a net that catches you when you fail and fall, right? The safety net idea is so often shameful that government support is what happens when you fail. What you're describing is a very different concept of government being committed to your success, government giving you, as I said, that foundation that allows you to do everything else from education all the way up. Uh, and I do often think that we need to rethink our social programs as a foundation rather than a net. This, I, I just worry about, about, particularly now, you need so much more than the kind of Band-Aid things that happen when, when you fall through the cracks. Well, I, I believe that the role of government should be about social and economic mobility. Yes. And so what I described to you was the kind of public and private investments necessary to make mobility possible, to make it possible for someone like myself, who's born in the bottom decile and has moved to the top 1%. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that that's realistic for everyone, because it's not. Right. But today, we have so little mobility and I do agree with you, Anne-Marie, the role of government, yes, the safety net matters, but mobility and having an escalator right. that continues to move up has to be the highest priority of government. And that means that the government has to be engaged with the markets, with the economy in a way that reduces disparities and makes it possible for mobility to still be a reasonable aspiration. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, again, that, that sense of hope, that sense of purpose, that sense of drive that sustains us when we, when we you know, get buffeted, as we inevitably do. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about diversity, because you are an enormous champion of diversity. You are an example of diversifying many, many closed circles over your lifetime. But I'm thinking a lot about diversity and resilience. So one of the most interesting definitions of resilience, which actually came from um, Walmart and McKinsey together, they have this study uh, of all the counties in the United States, every single one, and they rank them in terms of their resilience, which they define as capacity for change. And again, this is a dynamic vision of resilience, not a sort of static, hunker down vision. But I, I wonder to what extent diversity has to be a part of that capacity for change. Because we talk a lot about diversity and quality of decisions. And I think you and I both believe the more diverse the group around the table, the better the decisions uh, will be, the better the performance. But let's think about how what happens when you know it's a company, a foundation, or whatever that's in trouble. Why does it matter then to have a diverse group of people? How, how can we think about the relationship between 
diversity and resilience? Well, certainly for an organization that's in crisis, a diverse set of perspectives about how to respond is more critical than ever. I mean, one of the real challenges of crises and organizations' response is the response is often informed by people who don't have direct knowledge of the crises or of the population affected or of the region of the world or whatever. And so from my mind, this notion of diversity and how to ensure resilience in the face of adversity are an essential interplay, right? So so it's very important. When I think, for example, about some of the responses of institutions to changes in market, to public opposition, sometimes that opposition is coming from publics who are not a part of governance of the organizations that are being targeted, for example. Um, I see this with museums. I see this with companies who don't understand their consumers or don't understand the demographic transformation that's happening in America. And therefore, their decision-making is impaired because a more homogeneous group of people will look inward rather than looking outward when under pressure, when uh, being criticized from the outside. If you are a more diverse organization, you are able to respond to critics better. You are able to respond to the kind of urgency of a moment better. And and I often find that people dig their heels in uh, and and the sort of ideological rigidness sort of wins the day and then bad decisions are made. Are made. Because we get rigid when we're scared, well, right? Well, we get rigid and we... And we <laughs> tunnel vision. Tunnel vision and we revert to what yep. makes us most comfortable yep. and yep. what is our normative way, which may be why we're in trouble In the to begin first place. With. No, I think that's very important. You know, you've written about uh, different kinds of diversity, though, too, because o- so often when we talk about diversity, we mean more women, more people of color. You've written, written also that it's important to have class diversity. I know there was an op-ed this summer where, you know, you talked about your concerns about the, the current environment of, of anger toward wealthy people. And so talk a little bit about the full range of diversity. Well, I think in the context of that piece I wrote for the Times about the anger towards wealthy people, it was about the role of wealthy donors yeah. in in support of nonprofits, and particularly museums and cultural yes. organizations, yes. where because of reductions in public support, the influence of private donors is growing. Absolutely. And the harm, potential harm associated with that if we aren't really vigilant in our governance practices and the, and the compositions of our boards, right. et cetera. Right. So for me, diversity is, is, yes, it is about race and class and about gender and about the kind of astute awareness of demography hmm. and okay. place. Yep. 
but it is uh, also about ideas and perspectives. Yeah. And in and in the context of the U.S., you know, this can be uh, this can be fraught, yeah. right? Because we have identities, and when we think about identities, we do have pride in our identity. So, does this mean that the NAACP should have more whites on their board? Does this mean that the Jewish Museum uh, should have non-Jews on their board? I mean, the, I mean, the, that sounds are, like heresy. Right, right, well, but I mean, this, the, the <laughs> right. point here is that is that I hope I am speaking to the complexity yes. and yes. the contradictions and how there isn't just a, a pat a formulaic way to address this. It's why what I the piece I wrote last week about nuance. I was just going to come and, and ask you about that. So nuance. talk about more about that because that was really striking at a time of just you know where where the the echo chamber and the polarization and the the demonization just get more and more intense. You know, I thought of the still small voice of calm. I really thought talk about what you meant by nuance and why it's important. Well, thank you. What I meant by nuance in that piece really speaks to the moment we're in as a country where our leadership, where our incentives are moving us towards uh, the kind of paradigm that where everything is oppositional, where, where everything yes. is put into simplistic black and white narratives. Right. Something is good or bad, right or wrong, evil, virtuous, and there is no gray area. When in fact, what we know is in this complex world we live, most things are in the gray area. To solve problems in a diverse democracy like America, you have to be willing to go into the gray area. You have to be willing to have the public commons be a place where the gray area is what you engage in. And that right. space is, right. is, is, is informed by nuance and by contradictions right. and that we are able to hold those contradictions and to use them. I quoted Jefferson in a piece a few years ago, and I received criticism. So people said, why would you open your annual letter with a quote from Jefferson? He was a racist. Hole. He, Sally Hemings, I mean, the whole narrative. And I said, yes, he was those things, but he was also brilliant. Yeah. He also wrote words that I want to hold him accountable for. And so I can hold both narratives about Jefferson and I actually need to hold both narratives about him because if I think that Jefferson was purely an evil person, it is hard to imagine that there is any way to reconcile this country's history and its future. Yeah. And so I don't, under, I don't believe that we can that America can be America without our being able to hold that history, but to also use that history to inspire us to do better. Because in spite of the fact that the founding fathers were flawed men, they created the tools 
to allow us to solve the very problems they were unwilling or unable to solve. And, and so we have those tools. And that was a part of their genius, even though they did not live up to the very words that they wrote in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Exactly. Although, so I love that. And I think about that often. I grew up in Charlottesville and I think about going to Monticello. And I now think that going to Monticello is infinitely better than growing up when I was growing up. Because when I was growing up, Jefferson was an idol. There was just absolutely idolized. Today, he is an idol with not just feet of clay. He's probably about halfway up. Uh, But because you you see this extraordinary house he created, you read his words, you you have this sense of a cosmopolitan universalist who's just extraordinary. And of course, you see Mulberry Row and you know that he fathered children with his wife's half-sister whom he left enslaved, right? I mean, it's just, but that complexity is far better, far, far better, because if we believe our heroes are all perfect, you know, that we're bound to be disappointed, but we also can't take from them the need to push through complexity and deal with our own hypocrisies and our own flaws, right? None of us are perfect. (laughs) This is the part of it that I think I love engaging in when I think about our fathers, our founding fathers, and I think about the sort of idolatry that we have created around them and others and our need to do that. Exactly. I am much more of a realist about that. And but sometimes I understand why mythology is important. We all need to have a view of our families, uh, our friends, uh, departed people as in some ways uh, uh, idols, when in fact they were human and they had flaws. I was speaking with a group of African-Americans who were very upset about the film Selma in the representation of Dr. King's adultery and thought that it was unnecessary in the film when in fact his adultery was essential to telling the story of Martin Luther King. He was an amazing, indeed, one of the greatest leaders of American history, but he also was an adulterer. And he would have been the first person to say that as a man, as a Christian man, he was willing to acknowledge where he had come up short. And I think holding both of those narratives, I don't need Martin Luther King to be uh, godlike or a deity. He was a human being who led this country to reconcile some of its deepest wounds. And we're still doing that. And I'm comfortable holding both of those, just as I am comfortable holding Jefferson. I love that. And and indeed, if you think of Martin Luther King, he would have said, you know, let he who is, who is without sin cast the first stone, right? I mean, he was a, he was a minister. He was steeped in the gospel and in, and his own gospel said there there is no perfection uh, on earth. We have to grapple with our own flaws and we're stronger. But and if you think about even the Greek myths, right? You know, they are they are full. The gods 
are full of human flaws. And you have to, to wrestle with that as, a, as an archetype. And I do think it makes us much stronger as people. Even as a child, if there comes that day, you realize your parents are people with all right. the flaws of people. But ideally, you can work through that and also still see, see them as people that you look up to. So we've got time for one more question. And I actually want to uh, ask you just a more personal question about how you think about your own role and, and how you um, deal with a very particular kind of FOMO. So you have actually, you've written that, you know, people pitch you ideas all the time. I have pitched you ideas. That, I mean, it, it was, as someone says, when you're the head of a foundation, your jokes are funnier, you know, everybody wants to, to talk to you. And you, you wrote once that, that you remind yourself of a letter from Maya, a letter to Maya Angelou from somebody in the Ford Foundation who says, you know, you can basically forget about a grant. Uh, from us because you don't have any talent worthy of the Ford Foundation. This is Maya Angelou. How do you th think, you know, you get pitched all the time and you have to know, you have to say yes, you have to say no. How do you deal with the fear that you're missing the next Maya Angelou? How do you just reconcile that in your own head? Well, I think that that's a great question. And for me, I think I have to, I have to approach my work with great humility mm. and with the belief that I am not always right and that there is discovery every day <laughs> like if yeah. I am willing to be curious and if I'm willing to listen and to hear. And so I am in a daily conversation in my head about having uh, my blinders off and getting out of my own ideology and belief system to the extent that it impairs my ability to be fully open right. to right. what I see out in the world and when I'm hearing about ideas and perspectives. And that, that has helped me uh, a lot. You know, a, a couple of weeks ago, I received a, a, a piece of a research proposal and I thought, oh, this is a dry piece of research, right. really? And, and the prominent academic uh, asked for a meeting and I thought, oh, why? this really is not. But be open, Darren, right. be open be to open, hearing this. And I said, I've got, and of course, for all of us, you experience this, Anne-Marie, we've got a limited amount of time in a day. Yeah. And how many meetings can you squeeze in? And so rather than my, my, part of my approach has been to say, let's just have short 15 minute phone calls. And what I then have to discern is, can I, in that short period of time, structure the conversation so the kernel of this idea, right. I get that I, that I am able to decipher right. and that I can make some judgment about that allows for a more fulsome conversation so that I'm not wasting their time right. Right. and I'm not wasting my time. And so in this instance, that's what happened basically was a short call. But in a short period of time, the two researchers convinced me that there was more to it than what I had, had saw from an init initial read of a two-page pitch document, and that I at least ought to be open to. And uh, it's turned out that we're going to fund uh, the project, but it's an example of how when I start by reading something or seeing something on in my inbox, and my, in, my immediate reaction is no, to say, just be open 
to this. You you may not be right. Your no may not be right. right. So be open, be curious, be willing to hear. Don't get on. Don't walk into the meeting saying no. Walk into the meeting saying maybe or or I'm here to learn. Right. And that for me has helped me. I just think the curiosity yeah. part of it. You can't fake curiosity. You. It's hard to learn curiosity. Right. <laughs> um, curiosity I, I, is the key to learning. It, it but is. It's hard to learn. It is. Curiosity. And when yeah. I was uh, when I was a boy, I remember people would say, because I was so curious that I was, I was so curious, I was a nuisance. And I remember people saying to my mother, you know, what is wrong with your boy? Uh, You know, my, I remember once my aunt saying, you know, to my mother, what's ailing him? Like what's ailing him? He's so nosy. He's just nosy. And it wasn't that I was nosy, but I was what was interpreted as nosy and something ailing me was just my insatiable questioning about all sorts of things around me and the impatience of adults, especially with my just constant questioning. And I wasn't questioning, you know, in an Aristotle kind of Socratic way. I was just asking questions about the world around about the world around me and about what I was seeing (laughs) on television or what I was seeing on the block or whatever. Exactly. That head start lady, when she came down and asked your mom, your mom must have thought, Oh my goodness. Are you kidding? (laughs) Getting me out of the house? I I could just imagine. Four hours a day. Which is actually important for all parents. Beulah was beyond ecstatic. She had never, she didn't have any idea what what reducing childhood poverty and adolescent development was about. Right. But if it meant that I would be gone for four hours (laughs) Monday through Friday. I love it. Enroll him now. <laughs> Take him now. Well, Darren Walker, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. I always learn, speaking of curious and, and uh, openness to new things, you always teach me as, as much as uh, anyone I know. So thank you. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Anne-Marie. It's always a treat for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Resilience powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit our online magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to access my other interviews.